Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. Since we had enough introduction in the first service, we will get right in to this chapter of Isaiah. The chapter has three sections. Though I have broken it into eight parts, it really has three sections. It has a song that covers the first seven verses, and it has then 16 verses that cover the nation's sins from verse 8 to 23, and then there are seven verses of God calling the Chaldeans to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. So there's, there's really three sections. I've got it broken into eight parts. You'll see why as we go through it. Now, when I look at those three parts, first, a song about the vineyard. And you know that part of the chapter the best. You're familiar with that. That's verses 1 through 7. And then the last seven verses, from 23 to 30, the last seven verses are about the call of the Chaldeans. And so you've got the beginning of God saying to the Jews, you are like a vineyard to me. What did I do wrong that you are sinning this way against me? Here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to call the Chaldeans and they're going to destroy you. So, so that's first and last. And in between is the why. When he said, you gave me wild grapes, what actually is a wild grape? It's in verses 8 through 23. You may not appreciate what I'm doing right now, but I want to tell you something. Unless your mind is significantly bigger than mine. Now, most of yours are bigger than mine. I'll go ahead and give you that to get started. I need pieces. I need pieces to take 30 verses and understand them well. Right. And so that's, what I, that's why I'm saying it to you. You know the song of the vineyard in the first seven. And you can look at the last seven, beginning at verse 20. It's, it's actually only five verses. It starts at verse 26. It could start at verse 24. It depends where you want to pick. But in verse 26, it says, He will lift up an ensign to the nations. There is the ruin and the fall and the overthrow of Jerusalem and Judah. So you start with the vineyard and you end up with what he's going to do to the vineyard. He is going to wipe it out. Remember, he was going to replant it back there in chapter 4 because Isaiah's jumping around in prophets in his prophecies like the prophets do. And in between those two, the start and the end of chapter 5 is the list of wild grapes. What is a wild grape? Because we should want to know. Since he told them, you brought forth wild grapes, and because you brought forth wild grapes, here's what I'm going to do to you. We should want to know what wild grapes are. So 30 verses broken down into pieces. May the Lord bless us. First section of seven verses is the song of Judah as a vineyard. I read them to you. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness. 
but behold, a cry. Amen and amen. amen. Verse 4 is the key verse with the questions that should get our attention. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Those two questions ought to get our attention. What more could God, should God, have done for you than He has done for you? What more could He have done for Israel than make them the apple of His eye, His favored, favorite nation on earth, bringing them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty arm, with the wealth of Egypt, giving them the land of the seven nations of Canaan, with the wells dug, the walls up, the, the houses furnished, and so what more could He have done? Why were they wild grapes instead of sweet, luscious, wonderful, delightful grapes? What more could he have done for us? Right. We're on this side of the cross. He's done more for us. And so that would be the application. Right. You know, Isaiah wasn't making an application to us. Isaiah was making an application to Israel and to Judah. That though he had blessed them so abundantly, they did not yield something pleasant to him. And that, that question should bother us. You, the rest of this is so easy to understand that it, a very fruitful hill, a very fruitful hill, it was a land flowing with milk and honey was the description of it. Did they bring back a bunch of grapes between two men on a pole? Did they do that? Was that a fruitful hill that God put them in? So verse 1 is pretty easy. But you know, the, the tricky part about verse 1 is, Who's speaking about whom? It's Isaiah singing a song to Jehovah. It starts out pretty gentle. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Whose vineyard was it? Jehovah's. Isaiah's singing to Jehovah. But it doesn't last long this way. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it. He switches, and he fenced it, and he gathered out the stones thereof and describes it. But look at verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. Jehovah takes over Isaiah so that it becomes Jehovah God confronting the Jews. Beautiful, powerful, weighty. It's a song, and a song like this is not unusual in the Bible. Moses did this before he died. If you go look for the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 31 and 32, Moses will say, I would like all these words put in a song so that you can rehearse it with your children and your children's children because I'm afraid of what's going to happen after I'm gone. And was he ever right about that? But he wanted it put in a song. And so here we have a song about Israel and Judah. You can understand, verse 2, that those are similitudes. Those are similes. Those are metaphors. It, he fenced it. You know, God didn't put a fence around Judah and Israel in the sense of something about 36 inches high and it might have had an electrical wire running on the top or the bottom, that, that isn't the issue. The issue is protection. But he's using, he's using terms that you would use for a vineyard to apply to how he took care of the nation of Israel and of Judah. And he asks the inhabitants in verse 3, judge, make a judgment. And the judgment is in verse 4 with those two questions. What more should I or could I have done for you people? And when I expected something good, why didn't I get it? And now go to. If I've done all that for you people, and you're that wicked and rebellious, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do now. I gave you every privilege and opportunity that I could, but now I'm going to destroy your vineyard. I'm going to break down the wall. It's going to be eaten up. I'm going to lay it waste. I'm going to command the clouds not to rain on it. It's going to dry up. And in case anybody misunderstood, God the Holy Spirit gives us in verse 7 exactly what is under consideration, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts 
is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. Judah was always more pleasant to God than the rest of the nation because his son was coming through Judah. And he looked for judgment when God looked at Israel and to Judah that there would be judgment and justice in their courts, in their lives, he saw oppression. When he looked at Israel and Judah for righteousness, he heard a cry of people being oppressed, of those that were helpless, of widows, of, of fatherless children being taken advantage of. And so that is the song. And so the Lord, look at how the Lord has addressed the Jews in five chapters. Chapter one. O ye rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah, I hate your assemblies. I mean, he blasts away in chapter 1. Chapter 2, you're going to be hiding in the mountain, in the caves of the mountains when I bring the wrath on you that you deserve. Chapter 3, I'm going to turn your society upside down. Chapter 4, but I have great plans after I purge you and cleanse you from all your wickedness. And then we get another view of it here with a song. I gave you in the preparatory the question, where are the nine? Does that question trouble us when we hear it and we want, to, we want to be the one like the Samaritan that ran back to Jesus, fell on his face, and though he was a Samaritan and Jesus was a Jew, with a loud voice glorified God for his healing. Where, where are the nine? That provokes us. Verse 4 should provoke us. And it's been preached to you 15 years ago or so. We spent two sermons on just these seven verses and their application. I want to give you one more, though. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus told about a vineyard and a householder that owned a vineyard in Matthew chapter 21. And when the owner was gone and sent back servants to collect the rent and collect the revenue from that vineyard, they persecuted them and stoned them. And then he sent his son and they killed him. And Jesus had a question. What will the Lord of that vineyard do to those men? Listen to the answer. And it should be sweet to us. He will miserably destroy those wicked men and give out his vineyard to another nation that will bring forth fruits, meat thereof. And here we are. Amen. We're giving him fruits right now. And you know, it says the Pharisees knew that he was talking about them. And so there, that was a, this, this vineyard event happened. Nebuchadnezzar came and leveled the vineyard, leveled the nation. It had to be replanted. It had to have a branch put in the ground like we saw in chapter 4 and verse 2. But moving way ahead, Jesus saw that God's plant, God's nation was so wicked and he knew was going to crucify him. He said, God's going to take this vineyard away from you and give it to the Gentiles who will bring forth fruit. And so when we come in here, when we come in here and when we sing, when we come in here and when we pray, when we come in here and we fellowship with each other, we want to do it our very best because we are the vineyard of the Lord. We want to give him the, most, the sweetest, most luscious, most wonderful grapes ever. He wants to take us and crush us in his hands and have the greatest glass of wine ever. We want to give him our best. What else could he have done for us? We say it from this pulpit. I believe it without a doubt. I believe that most of you believe it. All things considered, every aspect of a man's life, we are the most blessed people in the history of the world. We're on this side of the cross. Not only are we on this side of the cross, we were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit to love that cross. Right. We heard the joyful sound of the gospel presented to us in terms that we could understand it. And we were made to believe it. Our hearts were open to it, like the heart of Lydia was open to attend to the preaching of Paul. The scriptures have been open to us. We have them in our language. We've had them in our language our whole lives. We can buy a Bible for a dollar at a dollar store. It's unbelievable. He has led us. When we look at our church history slides and see the doctrines that we have changed over 40 years, 
He has shown us so much truth. He has been with us so abundantly. We, what more could He have done for us? The Apostle Paul would say, So we thus reason, that if one died for all, then all were dead. Then they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and gave himself for them. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That is the greatest logic statement ever. If Jesus died, then I deserve death. And since he died for me so that I could live, I'm going to use that life he's given me to live for him. That was, that was just pure logical to Paul. And it should be logical to us here, answering verse 4 and answering, where are the nine? Oh, Lord, I'm sorry the other nine aren't here. I'll make up for them. I'll be the loudest one you've ever heard. And, and we ought to be that way. And so this is how Isaiah the prophet preached to Judah, Israel, Jerusalem, and let them know that God understood He had chosen them out of this world to be His plant. He had put them in a fruitful hill. He did everything to make for a successful vineyard, and instead He got wild grapes. He's done more for us than He ever did for Israel and Judah. Let's give Him the best grapes we possibly can in every part of our lives. Every part, here and when we're home. Every that we are sweet and delectable to him. That when he, when we, no bad finish. It's sweet in his mouth. The aftertaste is sweet. He delights in it. Brethren, we do not only want to sin against him. We don't want to sin against him. We don't want to disappoint him. We want to delight him. And when he squeezes your life, what does he get? We want it to be wonderful. Okay, let's go to the next part of this, chapter 5. Let's go to verses 8 through 10. Now, what, what are verses 8 through 23 going to be? Somebody said something a few minutes ago. I forgot. 8 through 23 are going to be, what's a wild grape? Okay, just, I want you to think. I need the parts. You've got a big mind. I should be able to preach faster. I need parts. So here we go. We've got to, and look at the, I'm going to tell you, who, who put the punctuation in the Bible? You believe that? Are we going to run into a few exclamation points? Are we going to run into exclamation points that match the occurrences of the word, whoa? Are we? Did you notice that in your reading? It's, it's pretty neat. Here's a woe and an exclamation point. Verses 8 through 10. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Exclamation point. That's a woe. That is a wild grape in verse 8. In mine ears said the Lord of hosts. I'm t- this, this woe, this sin in verse 8 is significant enough that God came down and it is written here and spoke in Isaiah's ear, let them have it. In mine ears said the Lord of hosts of a truth. This is the reality of the financial future and economic future of, this pe- of these people. Of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, houses that is, without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. Thus saith the Lord in the ear of Isaiah, because of the woe, the sin, the wild grape of verse 8. What is the wild grape? Professional and financial ambition to an excess. It is wanting to build estates and plantations and buying up all the available property around you so that you can have a great big massive southern colonial in the middle of it and everybody else is your servants. Plantation, estate building. Just to acquire. 
and it's got an exclamation point behind it. So it is something that God hates and something he is irritated with. It is not a sin to buy another piece of property. It's not a sin to have a second house. It's a sin to make those things the most important part of your life until you can practically corner the real property market because you want to build yourself an empire. You want to build yourself a name. You want to build yourself a family estate. If you go about it the right way, then you'll want to be like the prophet Agur that said, give me food convenient for me. And if the Lord adds riches to it, I'll take it. And if he doesn't, that's okay too. But I don't want too much, or I might get proud. I don't want too little, or I might steal. We want to be like Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. How much do I need to preach on verse 8? I have preached recently to the men about it. God measures men differently than by your paycheck. Should you be working hard on the job? Should you be working smart on the job? Should you have a plan? Should you have a trajectory? Yes, 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 and yes. If you're going to be godly, godly men work hard. Godly men work wise. But that is not the focus of their lives. And the focus of these men's lives was that. It was not the Lord. It was not justice for poor people. It was to get ahead and to get bigger until everyone else is your servant. And so verse 8 is describing just adding houses to your houses and buying more fields and more fields until there's no place left. You have cornered the market. That's what it's saying, that you've cornered the market, that they may be placed alone. That's called cornering the market in the midst of the earth with an exclamation point. So everyone in this church, especially you men, whom I push, and righteously and rightfully so, to be the best that you should be, don't aim for any higher than that. Right. Or you're falling into this woe, and you get a woe on your life, and you get an exclamation point on your life. And the truth of the matter is, many houses are going to be desolate. These houses that they've added to each other, when the owners are pulled out of them, killed in the streets, their carcasses are going to be torn in the street. It's right here. And their ore hauled off to Babylon, those houses and fields are going to be empty. Of a truth, this is what I'm going to bring to pass. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, the love of money is the root of all evil. Desiring to be rich will destroy your soul. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we want to remember. Godliness, helping the poor, helping the oppressed, being righteous, being sweet grapes to God, not accumulating, not hoarding. A blast from Isaiah. One of his six blasts. Verse 10, Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. Do you know how much that is? One acre of a vineyard yielded 33 bottles of wine. What does a, an acre of a vineyard in America in decent wine country yield? Between, and it varies greatly, 700 bottles and 10,000. Depending on how many tons of juice you can get from that acre. 33. I just picked a middle number. 4,000. That's bad. The Lord says, you think you're going to build yourself a financial empire? I've got something that I can do. And this is what the Bible describes. I can do this to it. I can blow against it. And when I blow against it, 33 bottles for an acre? And good wine country in Washington or California can get several thousand? Anyway, beautiful. The other part. And the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. What you want there for the ratio or the return is to know how does a homer relate to an ephah. And remember, it's not an omer. There's an omer in the Bible. This is a homer. A homer is ten times the size of an ephah. So you, you throw your seed out. You throw your seed, and the yield is one-tenth of what you sowed. You have a 90% loss on assets by what you sowed. When you sow corn, what is the return? 80,000%. 800 to 1. Because on an ear of corn, 
There's 16 rows times 50. There's 800 to 1. Yeah, I love this kind of stuff. Just, it's, a, it's an obsession, but it's a small one. It's a small one. Anyway, thank you, Lord, for telling us these things. So, men, as we go to work tomorrow, let's go to work wisely, to work as hard as we should, to be diligent, to have a trajectory for our careers, but to remember this woe and its exclamation point and what God can do. If you cross a line and you're accumulating things, money, jobs, position, title, becomes more important to you than him, all he has to do is blow. Verse 11 through 12. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them, exclamation point, and the harp, and the vial, the tabret, and pipe, and wine are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. This is the sins of drunkenness and parties. These verses, 8 through 23, are what wild grapes are. One was financial greed and covetousness. One is excess financial, economic, professional ambition. Now this one is drinking and partying. And we live in a generation like that. We as a church better not be guilty of it. I, I hope there's no one in here that would meet the description of verse 11 and be that level of a drunkard. Now the world would call the person in verse 11 an alcoholic. But the Bible doesn't know the word alcoholic. Right. The Bible knows the word drunkard. God hates drunkenness. God hates drunkenness. God hates alcohol altering you to where you would compromise righteousness with these, with this, or anything else in your life. Right. I preach the whole counsel of God. And God knows that I have been made and pushed in my latter years to grieve over that. I'm not going to change because I'm going to preach the Bible. Some of you like it too much. Just hear that. Whoa! God hates drunkenness. If you ever drink alcohol and it alters how you treat your wife or how you treat your children or what you see or this becomes a sin because you're saying things that you otherwise wouldn't and this is how the Bible describes it in Proverbs chapter 23 then you are crossing a line for the woe of verses 11 and 12 whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. That's the Lord very kindly saying, you're an idiot. It's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. It's to get your attention by saying it modestly. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Don't be deceived by it. It's a deceiver. It's the nature of it. I'm not going to change because the Bible is true. But so is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Woe unto them. No, I don't know of any here that your first trip in the morning is the local convenience. Don't ever... To follow strong drink all day until you get inflamed. But you, you should all know at what point you start to get inflamed and say things and do things that you shouldn't do. Now, to be relaxed and to open up a little bit, and to be comfortable. That's the purpose of it, and that's why God gave it. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this and trying to give us a little tiny bit of an application. And verse 12 says, it's where there's a lot of music going on at the same time. And does this ever sound like a frat house? Does this ever sound like the way that people party, and they want to have music, and they, go to, they want to have concerts, and they've got, they've got the music drumming their ears this way, and they've got the alcohol drumming them through their central nervous system, God hates it. God hates drunkenness. So, we have a warning here. Time is precious, brethren. Feasts are precious and dangerous. Use an agenda with a purpose. Be careful about getting together and drinking. Hanging out 
is basically a worthless waste of time. Unless you have an agenda. You don't have enough to do. Working men don't have time to hang out. Be careful. Be wise. I love every one of you. I have to preach the whole counsel of God. I hate seeing alcohol alter a person to where that person becomes obnoxious, too arrogant, too confident, proving that they're an idiot because they're being deceived by it and they don't know it. Verses 13 through 17, God's judgment of the pompous. These arrogant men who were so confident of their earnings in verse 8, so confident of their drinking in verse 11, here's the judgment God's going to bring. This is, this is in the middle. He's going to go to the Chaldeans at the end. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They are not living right. And their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. God's cut off the truth from them. God's cut off drink from them. God's cut off food from them. They are no longer living the fat and happy lives on their big estates because God has cut them off. Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth. I love the pulpit manner of God's preachers. Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. She's got her mouth so wide it can't be measured. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. It doesn't matter how much you like what you do. It doesn't matter how much fun you think you have with what you do. Here it is called, he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. All your glory, that big estate, your big job, and their multitude, all your friends that like hanging around you because you've got bucks, and their pomp, their display of their achievements and successes, and those that rejoice shall descend into it. This is the word of the Lord. And the mean man, that's an average low-class man, shall be brought down. And the mighty man, that's a strong man with lots of achievements whose upper class shall be humbled. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. And there's one more verse, but not yet. Notice God. He is going to take those that are too pompous and sinning against him crush them, and he describes hell as opening up its mouth to swallow them alive. And he says, but God's going to be vindicated. They're rebelling against me. Let's see who has the last laugh in this matter. Let's see who handles this best. I'm going to open up hell for them and swallow them down and everything to do with them. It doesn't matter whether they're low class or high class. I'm going to swallow them down. I'm going to starve them. They love to drink. They'll be dying of thirst. They love to eat. They'll be famished. They think they know everything. I'm going to cut off all knowledge from them. This is in verses 13 through 15. In verse 16, but the Lord of hosts, that's the God we love, that's our heavenly Father, shall be exalted in judgment and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness because he will not let men get away with sin like that and call themselves his children. All make sense? Powerful. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted. Putting men down puts God up when those men being put down are the ones that say they're his or pretend they're his and live like the devil. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. What does that verse mean as part of this section of judgment? That the poor little people that have been oppressed by the fat ones are going to be taking over their properties. Oh, I love that. It's obscure. I know the verse is obscure, but it's sweet. Then shall the lambs feed at... Who are the lambs? The ones taken advantage of. Listen, lambs don't usually go wander off too far from their ewes because they need their ewes. But these lambs are going to wander around and feed after their manner wherever they want to. Because the, do you know what the captain of the guard for the Chaldeans did with Jerusalem and Judah? After they had killed most everyone and the rest they, they got in the line to walk 900 miles to Babylon, do you know what he did? 
It's 2 Kings 25 and verse 12. He left the poorest people over there to take over the whole thing so at least there'd be a little agriculture while they were gone. <laughs> the lambs, the strangers that didn't have a legal right to the property are going to move into these big... <laughs> it's sweet, sweet. These little poor people that didn't have a legal right to the property... Remember, I gave... Oh, help me remember that text. I gave... Egypt for thy ransom. I remembered it. I want you to remember it. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. I'm sorry. I got to keep moving on. If you want to know more about verse 17, then you wait for the outline. You won't have to wait long. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner and the waste places of the fat ones. Why are they called waste places? No one's taking care of them anymore like they were. We've got this great big 15,000 square foot house and no one's living in it. Kids, look at this. There's two pools. All we got to do is clean them up a little bit. That's the Lord of hosts. I love every bit of everything about him. Okay, back to the grapes. Verse 18 and 19. Sins of presumptuous wickedness. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Look at their arrogance with the exclamation point again. Woe unto them. This sin, this grape, this wild grape is their arrogance and their presumption not only to endure, not only to give into the temptations of sin, but to run after sin and to rope it up and to pull it to yourself. They wanted sin. They planned sin. They couldn't sleep unless they were planning to sin. So their thoughts were about sin. And they were drawing that sin to them like with a cart rope, as verse 18 describes. This is presumptuous wickedness. This is not a man going through life, and he faces a temptation, and he, and he succumbs to it. And then his, his conscience smites him, and he confesses it to God, and tells the Lord he won't do that again but if God will give him strength, and he goes on. That is different from these men. These men are committed to living a wicked life. They don't care what the Bible says. They're going to do it their way. And then they add this sin to it. Isaiah and these other prophets are telling us we're going to get in trouble for this. Baloney. Why doesn't he show us? Come on, show us. Because... Do you know what wealth does? Wealth deceives people to think they're invincible. Do you know what drink does? Drink deceives people to think they're invincible. When God is quiet for a little while and you're getting away with presumptuous sins, you think you're invincible. God said so in Psalm 50. I didn't say anything and you thought that I was altogether such a one as thyself. I'll change your mind about that. And so this is... This is what Isaiah is preaching. This is why there had to be Chaldeans. This is why women were raped. This is why men were killed. This is why babies had their brains dashed out against stones by the Chaldean soldiers. This is why it happened for wild grapes. Let's not have wild grapes. God is fair. Amen. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. If you, if you will obey, ye shall eat the good of the land. He's fair. He's righteous. They made fun of God about His judgment. You say, I would never say what's in verse 19. I want to say two things about that. If God withdraws His grace from you, you'll say it. Number two, you don't have to say it to be guilty of it because the Bible teaches us, especially in Malachi chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, that when you show a disdain or a lack of real zeal and passion for the worship of God, that is what you're saying to Him. Just remember that. Remember Malachi chapter 1? When did we ever say the table of the Lord is contemptible? When you don't bring me your best, you are saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Remember that little rule. So I said two things. If the Lord withdrew His grace, you're capable of that. Do you know what Paul said in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13? Let, let us... 
Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. No way. I would never depart from the... Paul said we could. Verses 20 through 23. Sins of perverting godliness and justice. What do I mean by perverting it? Turning it upside down. Turning God's rules, God's standards upside down. We live in the middle of it right now in America. This is not about America. This is about the Jews and Israelites. But it certainly fits. I read verses 20 through 23. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, exclamation point. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight, exclamation point. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him, exclamation point. So there's the other three woes with their exclamation points. In verse 20, it's turning God's rules upside down. There are things that God considers and orders and and has decreed as being good and as being light and as being sweet. And the world turns them upside down and takes bitter, dark, evil things and calls them good, sweet, and light. And that's happening around us. Let it never happen in here. Let us hold fast to what God considers good and right. Sometimes I say things from the Bible that you think are a little extreme because no one else says them. But if the Bible says it, that's God's rule. That's God's standard. That is good, that is light, and that is sweet. And I trust Him on everything. But they're turning, they're turning everything upside down. Do you remember the slides from a few years ago, right side up in an upside down world? Do I need to give you, I don't need to give you examples, and I'm not going to. We're living in the middle of this, and Christians are doing it. Verse 21, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight, that think because they have a degree, that think they've gone, because they've gone to college, because they've, they have a degree in psychology, that they understand anything about human nature. They're wise in their own eyes. Let us not be that way. Let us tell the Lord right now and every day, Lord, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. Please give me a wise and understanding heart because I do not have it by nature. Let's always have that attitude. This arrogance. Get into a discussion with someone about child discipline and find out how they reason, how they think. Get into a discussion. These are such basic subjects, there is no reasoning about them. Capital punishment. You want to hear them? try. They'll talk about capital punishment. They'll try to tell you how it's not a deterrent. You've never seen a murderer put to death that murdered again. It is a deterrent. I know what they mean. Of course you know I know. But they're, they're like this verse. They're wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Our wisdom, our prudence, had always better be the Bible. You do not know how to be a better husband than the Bible describes. You do not know how to be a better wife than the Bible describes. If you try to alter how to be a wife because of your thoughts, your arrogant, puffed up, presumptuous thoughts, you are falling, you have stepped across the line of this woe and its exclamation point. You are calling something bitter good, sweet. You're calling something dark light. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Thank you, Lord, for Isaiah. Lord, we're living in the midst of this. And we don't care about reprobate America. We care about Christian America. And so many of them are living this way. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine. Now this verse 22 is not a repeat of verse 11. Exactly. Because it's a different sin that results. 11 and 12 our drunkenness and partying. Verses 22 and 23, our drunkenness and the overthrow of justice. 
They're misjudging by choice. They justify the wicked for reward and they take away the righteousness of the righteousness from him in that 23rd verse. Let us always be fair in all our dealings, absolutely fair on the job, with employees, with bosses, no purloining. We do not let anything influence us to be unfair. Don't let alcohol, I've said this once, I'm saying it again, don't let alcohol cause you to treat your spouse or children differently. Let's always be fair. You know a man who's had too much to drink? He'll protect a favorite child. He'll overpunish a less favorite child. And on and it goes. I'm just giving an example. I want you to, I want you to apply it to you. I want, I want to apply it to me. Do you like the woes? Can you see them? Can you find your six woes? And their exclamation marks. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us such a Bible. Verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, when a field has been cut down and harvested and the stubble is left, the little dried out stalks sticking out of the ground, and then the chaff, that's the husks beaten off the grain. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root, this vineyard, this is the church of God. This, these are not the Philistines. This is the church of God. Their root shall be as rottenness and their blossoms shall go up as dust. This plant is over. This vineyard is over. He's through with it. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The New Testament would put it this shortly. Despise not prophesyings. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 Despise not prophesyings. That's right, right here. Look, why did God burn them up like this and why did he say I'm through with this plant I'm through with this vineyard as far as it being planted in Israel because they cast away the law of the Lord of hosts in verse 24 and they despise the word of the Holy One of Israel I'm sorry that I have to say this because I know what a burden it puts on you let's be lovers of preaching let's be lovers of God's word I'm sorry I'm not a better preacher it is hard for me to say this. Let's love preaching because the Bible tells us to. Right. Let's not cast away his word or his law. Let's embrace his law. Let's embrace his word. Let's love it. Let's do it. Let's promote it among ourselves. Let's say, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Amen. Therefore, is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people. Why is it kindled? Because they cast away his law and despised his word. And he hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. The hills trembled. Do you know what an approaching army of Chaldeans would have sounded like in, to Judah? The I mean, that, that'd be literal. A hill is something you don't think ever moves. But it trembled because God shook the earth and his hand was stretched out still and he wasn't drawing it back. He still wanted to exert some pain and get himself a pound of flesh off of his church called Israel and Judah because they had cast away his law and despised his word. His hand is stretched out he had smitten them. The hills trembled. Carcasses were torn. Do you know what kind of carcasses we're talking about? Human bodies being torn and left in the streets by soldiers. Do I need to turn you to the passages that say they, they like to find pregnant women? In the Bible, this isn't my imagination, in the Bible, because to rip up a pregnant woman is the height of cruelty and God sent enemies against them to rip up their women with children. And his hand is stretched out still. So he's going to raise an ensign. I need a little bit more done. An ensign is a military... We come to the last section. It's verses 26 through 
30, I should read it to you. It says to read in the book and the law of God distinctly, then give the sense, not the other way around. I even believe that order. I hope you believe that order too. It makes a whole lot more sense. Verse 26, And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary, nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latch of their shoes be broken, whose arrows are sharp, and all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, the fruitful hill of the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, behold, darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. God has turned the nation upside down by war. Very quickly, verse 26, an ensign is a military banner to where troops should muster. That means where they should collect to, to form an army to march on a city. God would lift up an ensign to the nations from far because the Babylonians were going to come. They're Babylon is 900 miles or so, depending on what route you take because it's a difficult route from Jerusalem. But beyond Babylon, all the Confederate nations with the Babylonians and the Chaldeans were from 500 to 2,000 miles away. The Persians lying to the east of Babylon all the way toward India are 2,000 miles away. He is going to raise a banner to them. This is such an exciting passage of Scripture. There is no military action in the history of the world where God was not in complete control of it. He raises ensigns and calls nations to tasks, sometimes against themselves, sometimes against His people, sometimes His people against them. Sometimes he would call enemies to battle so that they could be destroyed. Like the nations of Canaan when they came in. The Lord put in their hearts, he hardened their hearts, because no man would ordinarily want to fight an army that had just marched through the Red Sea, then marched through the Jordan River, and the walls of Jericho fell down because they blasted on trumpets. Right. How many engines of war did they have under Joshua? Just trumpets. But why did they harden their hearts and come to them in battle? So that the poor Israelite men wouldn't have to go into houses and kill them in their beds. Go read it. It's Joshua. Chapter 11 and verse 20 is one of them. Now I've got, I got to have a little fun right here with hiss. He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. That's the Lord raised a military banner. You didn't see it. I didn't see it. They didn't see it. They just knew that it, all of a sudden they got the notion, hey, I hate Jews. Hey, I know, we've been, I, I know we've fought in the past. Let bygones be bygones. Will you join me? Let's go kill Jews. However they worded it, doesn't matter. I, you got my point. And will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. God will hiss unto them. Hiss is in our Bible 20 times. Hiss. If you look up the Oxford English Dictionary, please enjoy this with me for a moment. There, there are some men that think the Oxford English Dictionary might be inspired. Hiss. Go find it in an Oxford English Dictionary. Hiss. You know, when steam is escaping through a small hole, it makes a hiss. A snake makes a hiss. And when we use the word, when we try to pronounce the word S. 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 So you go look it up. To hiss at someone is to deride them, to show anger and disrespect toward them. And that's the only definition. And to drive them away. So to hiss in the Oxford English Dictionary is only to be derogatory toward someone or something and to drive it away. That's all there is. But we have a Bible. And the Bible tells us to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So there are 20 uses, and 17 are derogatory, where 
the Lord would destroy a city so badly that anybody that passed by would hiss at it. Okay? But there are three other uses, and one of them is right here. And what does this hiss here mean? To drive someone away or to call an army? To call an army. Then, when you go to men that don't believe in English dictionaries, but Bible commentators, oh, it, it was so sweet. They all know from ancient times that beekeepers in the past could take a hive of bees and lead them to the plants and fields where they wanted them by hissing. Everyone knows it. All the way back to B.C. times, to B.C. times, there are descriptions of beekeepers being able to... I know, I don't like bees. I never get close enough to hiss to them at all. I just run. But there were beekeepers that would hiss, and that's where it came from. Well, look at... Look at uh, going so fast I can't keep track with my outline. 718 is the one I want, right there next door. What a problem. Isaiah, I've got a whole lot of other references because there's 20 uses in the Bible, but I want this one. Isaiah 7 and verse 18, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So it, it, it actually tells us that in the Bible. We don't have to go anywhere else. But you know what hiss means in Isaiah 5 and verse 26 because he will lift up an ensign, which is a military banner to draw an army together, and he will hiss for that army, and they shall come. They won't run away. They'll come, and they'll come quickly and speedily. Verses 27 through 28 describe the fact that God is going to enable them. God will enable them that they won't be tired. They won't have pro logistic problems in moving this army 900 miles to Judah. They will not have logistic problems because he's going to take care of all those problems. No one's going to slumber or sleep. They're going to have extra energy. Their clothes won't be loosed. Their shoes will not wear out. They won't have boots breaking in the course of traveling 900 or 1,000 miles. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. Their horse's hooves shall be counted like flint. Instead of the weaker substance of a horse's hoof, it'll be like a stone or a rock. And their wheels like a whirlwind. There will be no mechanical problems. Those axles and wheels are going to roll because God has a purpose. We should never fear an army. You know, as a boy when I grew up, to see the Red Parade in Moscow every year and see those tanks, I would go straight to the Almanac. That's all I knew at the time. I would go straight to the Almanac to find out how many tanks they had and how many tanks we had. Then I would want to find out how many planes they had and how many planes we had and how fast could our planes go and how fast could their planes go and how many megaton it was our bombs and how many nuclear weapons did we have. Honestly, that's, that's the only way I could find peace was to try to find numbers that gave America an advantage. I'm sorry. I was a boy of little faith. But you know what? Isaiah is going to help us, boys of little faith. When we read passages like this, when God wants to bless a, mil a military, everything works. And when he doesn't want to bless a military, what happens to their axles and wheels in the middle of the Red Sea? Oh, it's pretty sweet. It's sweet. Thank you, Lord. Alexander the Great. Pastor, preacher, what about Alexander the Great? He conquered the known world faster than anyone else. He did it by himself. Did the Lord help him? Absolutely. Do you know what the words are in the Bible? Dominion was given to him. Who gave him dominion? God did. Men only shout in battle today when their, drone, when their drones have a direct hit. Okay? But in those days, there was shouting. Because you know what? It was hand to hand, and it was very intense, and it was very personal. And if you go to 1 Samuel 17 as an example only of David arriving at the battlefield, there were shouts. But when the Chaldeans arrived, they had no little weak, no little weak shout that they were there because they'd been drafted, and they didn't really want to be in the military. They wanted to be going to Greenville Tech instead. 
No, 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 no. They're there with a shout like a young lion. And their roar from their ranks was like the sea. And when you looked toward Judah, the fruitful hill, the church of God, his vineyard, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. How many churches from the churches of the apostles have ended up being this? Let it never happen to our church because we give him the best glass of wine he's ever had in his life, in his existence. Let us do the best we can to give him exceeding magnificent delight in our worship and service toward him publicly and privately. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.